I was delighted to have had David Gonoski with me for this episode of Primitive Accumulation, particularly as David was my first guest whom I did not know beforehand. I just emailed David out of the blue and he said yes. David was also very very generous with his time, talking with me for nearly two hours. As a libertarian Christian, David draws on his Christian faith to advocate for non-violent solutions to social problems. For David, this means that just as Jesus did not use violence to convince people of the correct moral course of action, so too modern society and political institutions should not resort to coercion to address social problems unless someone is being physically hurt or deceived, no matter how worthy such courses of action might be. David is very much in favour of collective efforts to address inequality and other social issues. It's just that he believes they should be addressed through the actions of free individuals coming, coming together themselves, rather than through the state apparatus, which he believes to be coercive. To this end, David is also very passionate about the abolition of prison sentences for victims' crimes. David's worldview is also underpinned by his reading of French philosopher René Girard's concept of mimesis, which is where society bonds itself together by casting out a scapegoat. David takes Girard's mimesis and argues that the modern state is also a manifestation of the scapegoating tendency in human society. Drawing on Girard, with the coming of Christ, David argues, this cycle of scapegoating can end and true respect for the individual can begin. In general, David favours solutions to social problems developed by the plucky individual and sees states and giant corporations as crowding these opportunities out. As a democratic socialist, I tend to believe that redistributive progressive taxation coupled with large-scale state-sponsored projects are an important tool for reducing poverty and maximising opportunity in society. I also went to a Christian primary school and the two main messages I take from Christianity are a concern for the disadvantaged and the importance of forgiveness. I was therefore intrigued to learn about how David articulated his Christian concern for the disadvantaged outside of states and corporations. David and I had a very cordial chat and it was interesting to learn more about his worldview. To give a short summary, you know, David Gordovsky is an entrepreneur, speaker and writer. He's also the founder of a project called The Neighbour's Choice, which seeks to introduce Jesus' culture of non-violence to both Christians and the broader public. The Neighbour's Choice is also the name of his weekly show on state violence and alternative solutions to it. Okay, so I'll just start that. So today it's great to have with me David Gunoski. Uh, David is a libertarian entrepreneur, a speaker and writer. He's also the founder of a project called The Neighbour's Choice, which seeks to introduce Jesus' culture of non-violence to both Christians and the broader public. A Neighbour's Choice is also the name of his weekly, weekly radio show on state violence and alternative solutions to it. And I really want to thank uh, David this, this afternoon for coming on my little hobby podcast. You know, I contacted you out of the blue and you said yes, so I really want to thank you for that. Well, I like the, the descriptions that you gave me about your podcast, mm. and I think we need to continue to help each other out as we engage in these conversations and make them more of a, a mainstay of public discussion. You know, mm. let's make our discourse elevated, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've got a number of, of different jumping points, jumping off points. Um, and again, as a teacher, it's good for me to learn these different views because, as I mentioned, you know, I, 
I'm kind of a lefty steeped in those kind of ideas, but I want to be able to teach different sides to my students, etc. because I teach politics and there's some economics in that. Um, so I suppose one jumping off point would be, you know, what do you see as the, the moral foundations for free markets in general? Well, and to be clear, I don't use the word libertarian to describe me, but others okay. are fair, you know, they can describe me as they like. You know, some yep. people would say I'm a progressive, some yep. people would say I'm a conservative, some people would say I'm a libertarian, and yep. everything in between. So, so I just let, if people want to describe whatever they make sense for them, that's fine. But yep. what I, uh, my, my belief in markets is simply the idea that uh, we have to address the word violence first. So I believe that the people should consider imitating Jesus, whether they are religiously inclined to believe in all the metaphysical claims that are ascribed to a belief in Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, when Jesus deals with people in his own right, he always talks about just take up your cross and follow me. Uh, I will make you fishers of men. Uh, you know, these ideas of becoming, being, mm -hmm. rather than thinking about certain ideas. Mm -hmm. I think your mind is very important in the process of becoming in the image of Jesus. But I think the primary way of becoming like Jesus is to imitate his actions, to imitate his love for his neighbor, to imitate his ethic of nonviolence and forgiveness mm -hmm. as the way you conduct your affairs with your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So that's the first starting point for me. So when we establish that and we establish that Jesus is someone who is totally embodying the ethic of nonviolence, then the next question is, well, what is violence, right? Violence, in my opinion, you know, nonviolence means you do not initiate force and you do not respond to force with vengeance. That's my definition. So in libertarian circles, the traditional formula is the non-aggression principle. So they typically get the first part completely rock solid. Don't initiate aggression that's or otherwise known as force. But they don't. They leave up for the person to decide whether you should have a right to vengeance. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of the Christian ethic is that it's non-aggression plus non-vengeance, which makes up the non-violence of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, within that formula, or it's not really a formula, but just in, we're trying to make sense of things that are hard to put into words. Mm -hmm. But within that, there is a place, I believe, for personal self-defense. And that means primarily that if you were to see someone being assaulted, if you were to see a, uh, a young woman being attacked, if you were to see an elderly man being beaten and taken his goods from, you would have your right as a Christian, as, and the word Christian here means imitating Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think you would be within your right to use the threat of defensive force mm -hmm. to stop the attack that's being done in mm -hmm. front of you, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see someone being attacked on the street and there's nobody to stop it, you, you have the ability to stop it. I don't think under a Christian framework of reality that it would be considered immoral mm -hmm. for you to physically grab the attacker if necessary and restrain them on the ground so that the person who is being victimized will no longer be victimized in that moment. Mm -hmm. So from that point of that personal skin-in-the-game ethic, mm -hmm. we can then say that if it's right and it's morally right for you to do that as an individual, 
then you can extend that to collective concerns that we call law, which means Mm -hmm. if I have the right to stop someone individually, I can then extend that same moral right as a law that says thou shalt not steal, Mm -hmm. thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not defraud, Mm -hmm. thou shalt not assault or attempt thereof. Mm-hmm. All those things can be enshrined because they naturally flow from what you as an individual are morally right to do in matters of personal situations. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis for what I believe to be common law. Western law was founded on that principle, mm-hmm. this idea of you must have a victim if you want to put someone into a, a, a cage, what we call jail or prison what they used to call dungeons. If you want to put someone in a cage, you must have an injured party. You must have an injured party. Now, there's a word, habeas corpus, that you've heard, perhaps. Yes. Uh, habeas corpus in the Latin means present the body. And this was the idea that you could not put someone in a prison cage uh, without having uh, them be presented in front of a court. They have to have a trial. You can't just put someone in a prison and not have a trial. Then it has to be a speedy trial according to our American system. And again, based on English common law. So, so the question is, okay, if you're going to uh, present the body, it means present the person being accused. Mm-hmm. I take that word habeas corpus. And there's also a mirror side of that is present the injured party. So who has this person injured? And if you cannot present an injured party, meaning that they've had their life threatened directly by this person. They've had their liberties constricted. They've had their property stolen from or defrauded. Because fraud, if you sell an elderly lady uh, beachfront property in Nebraska, that's fraud, right? You've, You've tricked them. Maybe perhaps they didn't understand what they were signing. You've deceived them, and now you've stolen their property. So that's considered – that's what I would call a kind of violent act. It's not violent in the sense that you're not hitting someone, mm. but you're tricking them yeah. and then taking their property, which was rightfully theirs. Mm-hmm. So the law should have a, a defensive force for those things. Mm-hmm. And so you know, that's where I'm coming from. With habeas corpus, we have to present the body of the person being accused, mm-hmm. but you also need to present the body of where the victim is. Mm-hmm. So if someone is doing heroin or selling heroin, mm-hmm. is there an injured party? Now, some might say, well, if someone is high and addicted to a drug, are they really having a sovereign mental faculty to make a decision to buy that drug from the drug dealer? Mm-hmm. And I know that can be a tricky area. But at the end of the day, the moment you introduce violence, which is what the law is, it's when you assert when you assert the use of law to preemptively stop an action because it may, if you allow that action to continue unabated, it may lead to violence. That's mm-hmm. where that's the basis of all the victimless crime laws. All the rights of the state are based on fortunately on that, that assertion that we can. So you break violence to preemptively stop a certain down the road. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. It's just. Can you hear me? It's saying the internet can able is unstable. Yeah, I've, I've got a. I could hear you. Great. Yes. No. That that does make sense. Um, was that clear the whole way through, or was yeah, it? Was no, the internet? 
No, it, it, it just only broke up a tiny bit, but that, at the end, okay. There, but that, yeah, that, no, that made that made sense. Um, and something that else, just to build on what you were saying there about state violence, something that I understand about free market arguments um, and the state around taxation. So, for example, you know, it, where where does the state get its get its authority to come along to someone individually and ultimately say, if you don't pay your taxes? Um, that we decide how we're going to spend them. You know, we're going to throw you in jail. Right, and I and I am not a person who speaks about taxes or anything. That's not my particular focus. Mm-hmm. But I will say this: um, we're talking about the moral mm-hmm. appropriation of what is what is the moral uh, standard for why how we're going to judge the kind of laws that we're going to support. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So think about it from this standpoint. You know. Uh, Jesus says, do not resist evil with violence. Because remember, I said imitation of Jesus is my standard for understanding politics and everything, economics. So if Jesus says, do not resist evil with violence, and that word, the word for resist not an evil one, Mm -hmm. that word resist means in the Greek to resist with force, resist with aggression. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if we're if we're permitted to resist, I mean, if we're prohibited from resisting evil with violence, then the question becomes: Let's suppose you think it's evil for your neighbor to not want to pay taxes. You say, "Oh yes, it's evil." Okay, are you a Christian? Yes, I want to imitate Jesus. Okay, he says, "Don't resist evil with violence." Okay. Is it violent to put someone in harm's way, meaning employ agents of the state with the option of lethal force? That means you're, you're sending mm-hmm. folks with the option of lethal force. I don't know how it is in America. I mean, uh, in Britain, mm-hmm. but, you know, in America, they come with the option of lethal force mm-hmm. if they need to. Mm-hmm. And they also have legal immunity that's different from the average actions of the common citizen. Mm-hmm. So you give someone that kind of situation, and then you put them into the a situation where someone hasn't paid taxes. Mm-hmm. Are you employing violence mm-hmm. to resist the evil of not paying taxes? I would say it's pretty clear, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, did Jesus forbid that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do people who say they're Christian not understand that? Absolutely, because mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, Christianity is taught more with the metaphysical ideology part of it rather than the actual ethics. Right. And so there's a focus on worshiping Jesus as a disembodied deity more so than imitating a concrete set of life choices that right. he modeled for us as a human being that we are obligated to live up to as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the standard for me is that, you know, if you're, if you're, it's not about, so my, here's my, here's my standard. I believe that Whatever the law is, you obey as an individual, okay? Mm-hmm. So whatever the law is, you obey. Now, there is some area where it becomes confusing when the law tells you to load up people into train cars to take them off to, um, you know, Auschwitz or something, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when you need to really rethink. And there's a lot of gray area as to, well, that's an extreme example, but what about all the other examples that are immoral too? Should you obey those? Mm-hmm. But my general rule of thumb, is to say, yes, obey, obey Caesar. Um, and, you know, and Jesus says something similar in the idea of 
when they come for your cloak, your outer garment, give them your inner garment too, which would make you shame them. They would be shamed because you would be uh, totally exposed. And that was considered a kind of farce and a disgrace for people to look upon somebody Mm -hmm. else's total nakedness. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is using performance art in that illustration to, to, to advocate for a kind of proactive, nonviolent resistance using performance art, satire, performed by the person being oppressed. And so I believe if tax authorities ask for 35%, if you can, give them 50% of what you have. That would be a Christian way. Now, I'm not saying that's – I'm not giving you an exact formula. What I am saying is that's the same principle of they came for your outer, outer garment and you gave them your full outfit. So that's a Christian nonviolent way of expressing the – uh, compliance, but also in a nonviolent way, which unveils the brutality of what they're doing. Yeah, no, um, a little thought came to my mind there as, as a teacher and learning this lesson is becoming a better teacher over time. When a student does something maybe a bit naughty and the teacher goes way over the top and in shouting and lose their temper and ends up looking like a fool themselves when, you know, something much less. Um, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what with with teachers. Teachers tend to be in, a, in an environment in which you're in, where you have one person, right? And then you have a crowd, which is the children. They're all on one side, and there's one. That's the scapegoat dynamic, right there. Now, now children can be scapegoated too by the teacher. You know, there's always that one kid that uh, tends to be the the focus of wrath by teachers like Mm -hmm. oh yeah no 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 and you kind of extra police one particular Mm -hmm. child or another particular child more than the other so they could be scapegoated as the locus of frustration Mm -hmm. but typically you know a teacher is in danger of becoming a scapegoat if they're in a situation in which the crowd in which the crowd of students believes that they have lost their credibility to keep their cool Mm -hmm. and to keep their conviction to keep their confidence at all times when they lose that sense of belief that they have confidence, there what happens is it becomes a crisis of undifferentiation in which the hierarchy between the, the, the teacher and the teached becomes blurred, and that's where rivalry is, is able to flourish. That's why student, that's why teachers who try to create buddy friendship relationships with their class they say, oh, look, I'm just your peer. See, we'll all get along, right? Yeah. That usually doesn't work very well. I mean, uh, that usually creates what we call in mimetic theory, a crisis of undifferentiation in which there is a loss of boundaries, a loss of self. And the children resent that because they don't feel like this is a serious endeavor at that point. Mm. No, no, that's all. A little bit of a tangent where we were going, but yeah, I, no, I, I could go on off. I won't go on off on a massive tangent, but that is all very true. What you've just said. In my direct well, experience. I so do, I want to make sure that we get the foundations of violence correct, and mm. we get it from a Christian standpoint. Yeah. So again, you know, you'll get some people who are like tax resistors. Mm. I am not an advocate of that. Never will be. Mm-hmm. I believe you should pay more than what they ask for you if you can. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's not I'm not making a moral edict. I'm not saying you have to pay more than what they ask. I'm mm. just saying that would be in the spirit of Christ. Yeah. Right. I, I understand. But that does not acknowledge the legitimacy that you, you know, you don't have a legitimate right, in my opinion, as an imitator of Jesus to then vote for politicians who keep those tax laws on the books. Do you see how it works? Yeah. Yeah. I understand. So you obey whatever laws are on the books. But as as a participant in the creation of law. Mm-hmm. And the execution of law, if you're on a jury, 
then you have a moral right to keep your Christian ethics consistently applied in every station of your life. So when you go into a voting booth and you vote, Mm -hmm. you don't get to say, well, Jesus says do not resist evil with violence, but it doesn't apply here. I just went behind a curtain. Mm -hmm. What that's doing is that's creating a ritual. Mm-hmm. It's a ritual where we play games. You know, Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, right? So we play these ritual roles. Once I go behind the veil of the of the uh, ballot booth, then my moral discernment that I learned on Sunday or whatever at church, that has no application for this secret ritual. Mm-hmm. I can now vote for whoever I want based on I hate this person mm-hmm. in politics. This is a evil persona. This is a bigot. This is a commie. This is a fascist, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So everything goes out the window, and it's all about basically a kind of amoral, uh, pragmatic argument of whoever I like the best or whoever I want to defeat or whatever it is. Mm. But you've lost your moral foundations, and Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, Mm. which means – when you carry a cross, it's going to put you in uncomfortable situations. You won't be able to go back to the office party and say, yeah, I voted I voted for the same guy we all like. Or, mm. yeah, I voted out that person who we all hated. Isn't that great? You don't get mm. to have that pleasure when you're taking up the cross. Mm. When you're taking up the cross, it means that you follow the way of the cross, the way of nonviolence, no matter what. Mm. No matter how popular it is to make an exception mm. or to morally obfuscate the things that we do. But I believe that if it's wrong for you, so let's go back to the personal choice. Mm. If it's wrong for you, and and you can maybe help me out here, do you believe that it's morally wrong to, uh, you know, as an individual, let's say you're in a neighborhood and you see that there's a wealthy, there's a wealthy man in the neighborhood Mm. and he's way wealthier. The woman is way wealthier than anybody else in the neighborhood. And uh, you guys want to get a, a park built for children to play in. And uh, this elderly person has no interest in putting his money or her money into a park. Mm. Right. And you say, but but you've got way more than you need, my mm. friend. Mm. You've got way more than you need. You were a very successful, shrewd business person. Mm. You've got more cars than any of us. You've got more land. You've got a bigger house than any of us. And we demand a park. Now, would it be moral for you to get over to your neighbor's house, this elderly person, and say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, can you hand over X amount of money to build this park for the rest of us who have children who want to play? And he says, excuse me, I have no interest. Please leave. So then you come back uh, and you've got a crowd of all the neighbors, or at least the majority of your neighborhood. You say, excuse me, sir, we all have decided that you're coughing up the money or else we've got guns and we're going to force you to go into a cage if you don't. And he says, "Uh, bug off. I have no interest in being a part of your endeavors. I'm investing in a program for children in Haiti, and I have no interest in investing in your particular idea for the use of my excess money. So then you say, well, excuse me, we have the majority here. We have the force. Mm. So try to resist and let's see what happens, sir. Mm. That's the nature of the state. That's the nature of democracy. Majority rules. Mm. Okay. Mm. But somehow what happens is we think 
when we think on an individual level of going up to a wealthy man and saying, here's my gun, you give me the money because I've got a sick person at home who needs treatment, Mm -hmm. or I've got a park to build for children. Mm -hmm. Somehow we know Mm -hmm. very clearly that that's wrong. Mm And we know it's wrong if we got a crowd at their door to join us. Mm. But somehow, this is the magic of humans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Somehow, when you have millions of people vote for people to Mm. execute this same procedure on their behalf, somehow the moral obfuscation sets in and people act as if that's business as usual. Mm. And that's how we have democracy. You see, you have to, in order to have consistent ethics, you have to be able to distill it Mm. into the personal choices in the local community, including the neighborhood, to be able to understand what we're doing when millions of people say, Mm. we have elected this person to Mm. confiscate this additional wealth from you Mm. because that's what we've decided. And the Mm. person says, but but, but, but wait a second, I have another means for my money. Mm. And they say, it doesn't matter. We have the majority. You must submit, you know, but Jesus says, don't resist evil with violence. So if you think it's evil, if the majority of the people in the neighborhood think it's evil for the man to withhold his funding of this, of the playground, then by what standard, if they are living under the imitation of Jesus, can they say, well, but we get to resist this evil with violence. No, I think that's a really strong metaphor. Um, and I suppose it rests on the idea of consent. Would I be right in thinking of that? Yeah, I think consent is a is a great way to to distill it. Yes, but you know that's what the, when you look at social contract, you know the idea of a social contract theory. Mm-hmm. I think you like John Stuart Mill's. Wasn't okay, he an yeah. advocate of a social contract? Right. Um, I I'd not. Or was he more the... utilitarian about it? Well, I, I suppose the, the aspect of John Stuart Mill that I like is is the idea of testing all your ideas and against you know strong ideas to the opposite to try and come towards a, a a form of truth, sort of the freedom of exploration, freedom of speech kind of aspect of it. I suppose is the bit I like. Right, but if we think about the social contract theory, it is a mythology. Mm. You know, uh, Hobbes, Locke. When you get these ideas of we just some pat some place in the distant past this is the mythology that we believe many people believe it and our institutions are built on this lie that in the beginning there was a state of nature and uh, to various degrees it's either really brutish and awful or it's it's utopia like go to rousseau everybody's happy everybody just got along right but but generally speaking you have the state of nature and then all of a sudden uh, there's various spins on the social contract theory, but basically we all decided to just put away our violence and sit down and sketch out a contract that we'd all agree to. Mm. That's just mythology. No one mm. ever did that. Mm. <laughs> you know, everything has been done has been done by the use of collective violence on behalf of the interests that are able to control that collective violence and subdue and force others to submit. So we don't want to acknowledge that. We want to create a mythology that justifies the institutions that we have mm. because it's very uncomfortable mm. to look them face to face and to realize that you can put on the fanciest wigs as a judge and the fanciest cloaks mm. and the fanciest pomp and circumstance, but you're no different than the primitive tribalism that we mm. talk about being so far beyond. Mm-hmm. We're not. 
the 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 primitive sacred of our ancient past and archaic past is much closer to home than we realize. And one of the things that you'll see, and I think I think unfortunately, the UK has been a little bit closer in terms of going down this path of political correctness. But the the right uh, the American situation is not far behind. Which is that there's this political correctness that is increasingly aware of the evil of the violence that we do and the evil of the marginalization of what you referred to earlier as the underdog, right? Mm. And the underdog can be different minority groups, it can be genders, it can be disabilities, right? And so we look at the evil of people being oppressed along those categories. Mm -hmm. And so that's a process that Christ has introduced into history in which we become increasingly haunted by the violence that our societies use Mm -hmm. and by the hierarchies. This is important. Mm -hmm. The hierarchies of power, which we feel are mediated Mm -hmm. and enforced by that collective violence. Mm -hmm. And so as we continue to be infected by that, even though we say we're less and less religious, mm. ethically and aesthetically, mm. we are more haunted by the cross than mm. ever in mm. 2020 AD. Mm. Because it's a process. Mm. It's working itself through us 2,000 years in the making, and it's becoming increasingly infecting everything that we think about. Mm. And so what I'm suggesting here is that this obsession with uh, – Finding all the problems to be the fault of, let's say, Western countries themselves, mm. or the fault lies in the Christian religion or patriarchy. Mm. What's happened? The reason why that's happening is as you become aware of the violence in the past, mm. it creates a kill the messenger effect. Christianity is the context by which we, as a mm. culture, are waking up with sensitivity to past exploitation, to past imperialistic exploits, to past injustices and racism and bigotry, right? Yeah. But we look and we don't see the full totality of it. We don't recognize that it's at our origin. So we're only able to see it in in our recent history. And that recent history had Christianity as the governing dominant, you know, cultural force. And so we scapegoat Christianity and patriarchy and the uh, nuclear family and Western governments and Western society and cultures. We scapegoat those as the locus of all evil in the world because there's a delayed effect where we're not able to fully see that actually this tendency to want to use collective violence to subdue people by force is a universal thing that every human person has had to wrestle with and that every culture has been founded on. So it's like that flowering of individual liberty. Right. So Christianity is, you know, we're the only culture in the West where we self-flagellate our own culture to to uh, to gain status, right? So you don't see, you know, if you look at other cultures that are not as Western westernized, you don't see the same tendency to... Uh, attack their own culture and attack their own culture's recent history with exploiting or conquering other peoples, right? 
you see them not as self-critical about their their path to power that they have in the world. Um, but in the West, because we've had Christianity longer and un- you know uninterrupted, we've become way more acutely sensitive to our own personal and our own cultural failings that we don't see that this this violence that we detest on our own ancestors is actually something that all humans have had to wrestle with that they're not that the violence and exploitation imperialism bigotry etc is not something that was created by the institutions of the church mm. or the institutions of patriarchy or the institutions of western values mm. but rather is something that has been going on universally since the beginning of human culture. Mm. And I think the work of René Girard is very helpful yeah. in understanding that. No, no, that's really good. And um, David, just, you know, whenever you feel like you want to wrap up, please please let me know. It's really interesting so far. But I was just going to, with you mentioning René Girard there, um, and, you know, you've talked about this idea of Girardian mimesis and state projects, etc. Um, and... Um, that's very interesting in itself. Um, I mean, one one thing I would like to just add in there, um, and again, the, if these subjects aren't quite appropriate, uh, but I suppose the deeper question is there, is, is what's more productive of the public good? Is it kind of like a, a profit motive or the idea of public service, or is that a false dichotomy? Because something that I find very... Um, powerful from a free market point of view is sort of that idea of adam smith's enlightened self-interest you know and it has, it's a quite a good way of overcoming selfishness you know that idea that you want someone wants to be a good baker because you want people to come along and buy your buy your bread so the net outcome is a win-win for everyone so would that be a way of you know free markets having a moral tone to them let's say yeah my friend jerry boyer who's a economist and writer he makes a great point in reminding me recently that, you know, the word, you know, that the idea of economics being, remember that term, the dismal science, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And he points out that that term was coined by the moneyed aristocracy, which had had the privilege of having state privilege for so long that in in Europe that when they came out with these ideas of a free market mm-hmm. they were abhorrent at the idea that people who they wanted to be their serfs mm-hmm. could could be break could break free from that serfdom could break free from that that uh, servant status and have their own property and to actually have money and gain wealth mm-hmm. in what we call now a middle class status or beyond mm-hmm. That was totally disgusting to the aristocracy who had long used the position of the state in its forms that they had had, monarchies and so on, to use it to their advantage and for the little persons to be totally subjugated. So this notion of – and even Marx understood that you know, capitalism was a progress, right? It wasn't wasn't like the worst of the worst. You know, today's left is very silly in the way that they they, they try to demonize – in a cartoonish way, the market, 
as if it's the worst of all worst things you could come up with. When in reality, even a good Marxist would understand that, well, it's a trajectory upwards that it's not, it has many benefits, but we need to get to the next level through class consciousness and, and have that universal, uh, you know, uh, classless society that he envisioned. But Marx's program, unfortunately, employs the same logic of sacrificial violence that Christianity is totally against. Mm -hmm. I would say that Marxism is an attempt to disobey Jesus and still try to get the same project that Jesus wanted. You know, so Jesus says, you can't do this by violence. Mm -hmm. He says it over and over again in everything he does. Mm -hmm. You can't do this by violence. Mm -hmm. It only comes through the personal initiative of of the neighbor. And he gives you the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan has to make the choice of saving his own nemesis, the person who would find him to be beneath contempt, a, a different, you know, a rival group. The, his, these people would view the Samaritans as less than dogs, unfortunately, in that time. And the Good Samaritan has to consider the risk that if he goes up to the person who's bleeding, he may get the disease that that guy got, or it may be a trap for robbers to come and, it's, and assault him. They were tricking him with bait, or he may be shunned by his community if he is found out to be helping an enemy. He may be called a Nazi that needs to be punched or something in the media, right? <laughs> if he helps someone who is considered an enemy. And whatever it is, he individually out of his own personal initiative, makes the leap of faith to help the neighbor. Now, you cannot codify that as a moral law in terms of social justice or equity and things that the government can do. Because the moment you employ violence, it backfires and it creates more violence. Martin Luther King Jr. was very clear about it. Hate cannot drive out hate. Violence cannot drive out violence. And the one thing we don't understand is we don't want to apply that to our collective institutions. We don't want to do that. We, we get it all day long about individuals, you know. We say, yeah, learn Martin Luther King when it comes to uh, you're at the schoolyard and a bully punches you and you want to punch him back or humiliate him. We teach that because that's the simple – that doesn't get to our idols. That doesn't get to the things that we worship. But unfortunately, we, we, worship, we worship human power. We worship the crony corporations and, and big governments that rule the world, and we worship the idols that they produce in the form of politicians and – plans and ideologies, and we feel the need that we have the right to sacrifice those who disobey that grand design for the world. So uh, just the, the point here is that, you know, we have an obligation to our neighbor, but part of that obligation is dependent on the free will choice that we have to make. And, you know, one of the things that the left is good about is they say the right should not try to impose morality by law, right? They say that all the time. They say you cannot, you know, uh, create a license for who can get married by the government because then you're imposing morality by law. And uh, the same goes for other issues, you know. But, uh, you know, they would, the left is sometimes good about that with drugs. They say you cannot import, enforce morality by law to make someone stop doing marijuana or some drug that you find to be a bad behavior. And they're right for that. But the, wrong, the area where the left makes a mistake there is that they don't understand well, that also applies to your economic choices. You know, because to say that we're going to force this kind of economic outcome, 
by law is to impose morality by law. And furthermore, is to impose religion by law, because it is the Christian faith that says you are obligated to love your neighbor as yourself. You're obligated to uh, to uh, you know get rid of all your wealth and go love the neighbor. But it doesn't say you are going to be forced to. And Jesus is so clear about that. Remember the story, I don't know if you've heard of the story where he sends his followers to other towns to tell them the story of following him. And they come back and they say, uh, this town did not give us any time of day. They didn't listen to us. Should we call down hellfire or, you know, should we call down righteous fire and judgment from heaven on them? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you speak of. So you're not speaking from the spirit that I'm speaking from when you say get revenge on them because they're not following the the message of love and jubilee that we're giving them. You're actually employing the the message of evil. And he does that to Jesus to, to Peter too. Because remember, Peter, think about Peter. Peter's just like Bernie Sanders. Peter, and I'm not picking on him. It's for any politician. So don't I'm not singling him out. But I want people to understand the, the context that Peter's looking at. Peter's looking at a situation where he sees Roman occupiers subjugating the people, hurting the poor, raping those who are vulnerable, uh, assaulting people, manipulating the taxation system for their own crony friends, totally humiliating everything about their people, keeping them in squalor, keeping them in poor health conditions. And what Peter saw with Jesus, Jesus is giving universal health care. He's healing everybody, poor and rich alike, right? But he's not doing it by force. He's doing it neighbor to neighbor, like we're called to do in the market, and not just the market in the in the nonviolent space outside of the government. And so, so he looks at that situation and he says, "All right, Jesus has a following here. It's time to get, it's time to get justice. It's time for the ninety nine percent to throw off the one percent. You know, it's time for the rich rulers and their connections to the government to be thrown out." and for the real king to arrive, and that is Jesus, to be on the throne. Yeah. And so that's what Je- that's what Peter sees when he sees this building movement in the countryside with Jesus. And he says, no, Jesus, let it not be said that you would die on a cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not know the things of God. You have the things of man in mind. You're a stumbling block to me. You're a scandal to me is what the word means. So this idea of a stumbling block, a scandal, is very important for understanding what he's saying. What he is saying is that, first of all, the word Satan means accuser. So he is saying, get behind me, accuser. You're drawing me into the things that accusing folks do, and I'm not going to do it that way. And what he's trying to do is he's, he's saying, you're tempting me to do things the way you want this to be done. You know there's a lot of oppression like I do. You know that the 1% is exploiting the 99%. You know that they're not getting proper health. They're not getting proper uh, access to wealth opportunities. You know that the whole thing is rigged. But you're trying to tempt me to turn this into a political movement and use force to take the throne by force, overthrow Herod, overthrow the Roman occupiers, and to implement my vision through force. Mm. And I'm telling you, that's the way of Satan. That's the way of accusers. That has nothing to do with what I'm doing. Mm. And so that's what's happening every day. We have to make that choice ourselves. Mm. 
we have to make the choice to say whether we're going to act like Peter and say, I think this is unjust. I think this is unjust. All right. I'm going to go side with a political prescription and use force to solve it. Mm -hmm. Or we can act like Jesus and say, nope, the only way we can defeat this is by quickening people's personal agency and their families to give of their lives, to self-give, to self-sacrifice, to use their talents, to love and serve their neighbor, as you mentioned with Adam Smith. That is not selfishness. It can be selfishness. Mm -hmm. But the question is, just because people use a free market for selfish means, does that mean that we punish that evil with violence? And the answer with your Christian worldview is absolutely not. No, that's, that, that makes absolute sense in terms of uh, the axioms you've been setting out. Um, and just, just one quick aside is that Adam Smith was on, on the £20 note in England and in the UK until recently. Um, oh, wow. But um, just moving on from that, uh, I mean, so many things, but you mentioned there about state power um, and, and that brought me back to your article about the, the Gothard tunnel um, and, and that um, aesthetic of statism. And I was, before talking to you, I was watching the opening ceremony and that is a bizarre opening ceremony for opening a tunnel. But I suppose yeah. it, it leads back to your point about this idea of people or were still drawn to very much you know wanting to rely on state power to protect us or something like that yeah and remember when i say state power that doesn't just mean purely the state alone what it means is the culture that demands violent top-down mm -hmm. solutions mm -hmm. and the not only the state apparatus itself and its bureaucracies mm -hmm. but also the crony corporations right mm -hmm. This is not a – nothing I'm saying is an apology for corporations. Mm -hmm. Nothing I'm saying – what I'm saying is there's a lot of bad-acting corporations mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And here's the question. What's the best way to beat them? Is it the way of the cross or the way of the sword? Mm -hmm. do, do, do we fight the exploitation of labor with force, yeah. which is what Peter wanted to do? Mm -hmm. Or do we do it with the way of the cross, which is a nonviolent witness where you challenge the evil, mm. but you don't challenge it with force. Mm. And when we do that, we can open up avenues of wealth using nonviolent means. For example, let me just give you a fantasy example. Imagine that we stumbled on a way to create nuclear power. You know what they used to call it? Cold fusion. They used to call it cold fusion. Now, everybody laughs at that. But imagine that something like that came about, mm -hmm. that you could power our factories and power, our homes and our cars with water, mm. not even seawater. You could use any water and mm. it would produce a safe uh, type of nuclear type of energy mm -hmm. that would power on water. Mm. Now, imagine someone's working on that right now. They're not working at a government bureaucracy. Mm. They're using their brain and they're using their talent and they're working with other folks to bring that. Now, if that comes out to the market, there's no way you can patent that, right? Just like you can't bat can patent the combustion engine, and there's multiple people making combustion engines to this day. Mm. So imagine you, you have that happen. Mm. What does that do for the evil big oil companies and the big everybody companies, right? Mm. Now, if you tried to do that through a top-down solution like government energy mm. policy, what would happen? Well, big solar, <laughs> big solar, big wind farm, big carbon tax credit, 
all those little green energy companies that are telling us about global warming, they'd say, excuse me, Mr. Politicians or Mrs. Politicians. We've been here a lot longer than this little nutcase who's got cold fusion with water. So we are going to exclude this from being able to brought, be brought to market. And they'll make every legitimate excuse. They'll say it's dangerous. They'll say it'll wreck the economy. They'll say people might use it for violent means or something. They'll make every stupid PR marketing campaign that cronies do. But they, it will be less likely for energy too cheap to meter and energy with no carbon footprint to come about through government solutions than it will be for it to come about through the market. Mm. And when I mean government solutions, I mean the crony corporations that pretend to be the solution for climate change. And in fact, they're just what they're doing is they're rigging the market to make massive government subsidies mm. directed towards their solar farms and their batteries, which actually to make those batteries, of course, does a lot of damage to the, to the environment too, mm. and their wind farms. Because they're not on their own able to be at a price point which can compete with the dirtier forms of energy production that we currently have. So they have to require massive government handouts to make them somewhat affordable. And they like it that way. Isn't it nice to have a business where you get the force of law to violently confiscate folks' money and direct it to your profit because it's a moral thing to do because climate change is happening? Rather than the guy, the Galileo, right now – I'm just saying theoretically, who might be working on powering cars and factories and homes with water, mm. that guy's not going to have a seat at the – or that woman's not going to have a seat at the at the table. Mm. He's never going to have – that person's never going to have a seat at the table. Mm. But you, you, you made a point about the Gothard Tunnel, and I want to illustrate how weird that thing is and how, how, how uh, telling that is. To me, I'm not concerned at all really about the symbols and the – all that stuff on that kind of because of how grotesque it is. Look, I enjoy Jim Henson, Labyrinth, and Dark Crystal, those things with weird creatures. It's not about being snobbish about that. The issue that I have, and I pointed out in my article, was that in the Gothard Tunnel, uh, in the ceremony, they have this depiction of these miners that are, I don't know if you saw this part, where these miners' souls are draped in the background as as being sacrificed to this Baphomet-looking goat demon. Did you see this? I saw that a bit. I didn't. That makes sense. So I didn't realize that the reason why they were veiled is because that was their their souls. But yeah, that yeah, makes they're, sense. they're yeah. they're you know. But here's the scary part. Mm. All right. So this is the thing that is disturbing to me. There was miners that mm. actually died in the making of the tunnel in mm. real life. Yeah. Now, how in the world? Is it appropriate mm. for heads of state mm. all over Europe mm. and their crony corporate friends? Mm. And I know I'm not reading into this. I'm just trying to mm. show you the values that these people have. Yeah. They don't even yeah. see it. That they're applauding and they're celebrating this elaborate performance, mm. which takes real life people's flesh and blood family members mm. that died in the making of this tunnel mm. and then interprets them as some kind of sacrifice. Mm. To the God that blesses the tunnel's opening. Mm. This is pagan. Mm. This is pagan uh, aesthetic. Mm. I'm not saying these people are pagan. I'm saying mm. that for some reason, the the aesthetic of the state has no problem with this, an aesthetic of sacrifice. Yeah. 
the the goat demon in this video of this performance mm. is referencing a kind of goat demon or goat mm. god or whatever mm. from the Swiss region where mm. this tunnel was developed. Yeah. That goes back hundreds of years ago in legend mm. that this goat demon or goat god mm. uh, was the kind of god of those of that mountain mm. area. And uh, in more pagan times in Europe, the folklore was that, you know, this God demanded sacrifice Mm. for your safe travel through the mountains. And when Christianity came about, they actually had a legend that the priests of the village offered, okay, this God demands a uh, sacrifice. But instead of giving them a human, we would offer it a goat instead and trick it. Because the, I think the, the story was, whatever comes across this path first must be sacrificed to me. And so in the legend, the Christians having influenced that legend are now saying, no, we decided that we would let send a goat across first. And so the God kills it. This demon, they, they, you know, what are the pagan gods become demons in the mm. Christian legends, right? Mm. And so this demon or satanic type figure kills the goat. And that, and he's outraged because now his power is broken because he was tricked. He mm. wanted human flesh, but he got a, a goat in, ext- in its stead. Mm. So this is simil- similar to the Christian story of. Of you know the the motif of the Lamb of God. Yep. This is similar to the Jewish stories of the scapegoat, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the story of Abraham and mm-hmm. Isaac, the binding of Isaac, mm-hmm. where a ram is offered instead of killing human. So the Bible is this whole trajectory away from human sacrifice, mm-hmm. and it has a temporary stopgap where it says, if you need to kill somebody to get your rage out mm-hmm. and to get your guilt out, do an animal, kill an animal, not a human. So that's like a temporary measure that the ancient Hebrews deal with. But Jesus comes and says, no, the whole thing, God never desired sacrifice. He desires mercy. And so the whole story goes towards, okay, first humans wanted human sacrifice at the origins of all universal cultures. Mm -hmm. That's why we know that ritual cannibalism is found at the earliest records of anthropology. And, the cannibalization of of an individual to consume their essence for the propitiation for the peace of the community. Uh, And then we see ritual human sacrifice right there at the beginning of all the different cultures that have survived in the records that we are able to discern ritual human sacrifice. And then what, what the story of Jesus in the Bible does is it comes into that moment and it says, no, we're not doing the whole human sacrifice thing. God doesn't desire human sacrifice. This is a total progressive thing. All the other cultures at the time said, what do you mean gods don't desire sacrifice? Of course they do. This is how the world works. And then, so it's a very progressive thing to say animals, even though today we look at it because we're so thoroughly Christianized. We say, oh my goodness, how brutish, how disgusting to kill a, a blood of a bull, how primitive the Bible is. Because we're so thoroughly Christianized in our aesthetic, we can't even see what we're, we don't even know what we're doing. You know, we don't realize what we're looking at. And so it was a weaning off period, and then it culminates with Jesus saying, I will end the whole sacrificial process itself now. Instead of sacrificing animals, you certainly can't sacrifice humans, 
But here's what you do. You self-sacrifice. You give up your right to your privilege, your right to your comfort, your right to being right, your right to power, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You give up your right to yourself to love your neighbor. And that's the self-sacrifice ethic that we're now wrestling with 2,000 years later. But in that tunnel ceremony, 2,000 years later, after Christianity has done its work in fits and starts and failings and successes, you have people in Western societies who feel like they could be so audacious as to celebrate a tunnel opening ceremony Mm. by trying to return back to the pagan sacred, Mm. by trying to say, no, we've restarted it. Now it's the goat God. And you watch the play, you'll see the goat God mounting the corpses of of these miners who represent the real miners' death, Mm. mounting them in some kind of marriage ritual. It's disgusting. And you think to yourself, wait a second. You guys accidentally just revealed the logic of the state, that it's still doing the same sacrificial violence that Christianity is trying to break us away from. But now, because I believe they're weaker than they've ever been in their entire existence in terms of government powers, because of Christianity, now they're forced to be a a little bit more blatant and more in-your-face The mask is falling apart in their desperation to get us to worship them. And now we're seeing, and I'm not saying they intended it this Mm. way. It's just that art reveals the nature of the creator. Mm. And uh, this, I mean, think about that. Think of that legend from several hundred years ago of Christian tradition saying, uh, you know, these God, the God of this local community that we have now Christianized. They're trying to go into that story and make sense of it from a new Christian stance. So they're saying, no, that God that demands human sacrifices for you to cross paths and have bridges. Actually, we're going to say, let's trick it and give it a goat. We're not going to give it a human. We're, gonna, we're, we're trying to wean off the pagan Swiss and those people from their appetite for human sacrifice. So let's give them a goat, right? Yeah. And now... 2,000 years later, these supposed sophisticated moderns who supposedly don't have any religion, (laughs) they're all sitting around clapping as this goat demon is shown mounting the corpses that have been offered for his glory so that the tunnel can be completed for the glory of multinational corporations and global government in terms of global, you know, global arrangements of trade and so forth. Isn't that interesting? No, it's very, it's, it's very interesting analysis. Um, and and again, you've been really generous with your time, David. So I don't, I don't want to take you. I've got more things that I'd like to touch on you with, but I, you know, I don't want to just tell me whenever you want to stop. You've been very generous. Well, so just I mean, we can always do another one too later yeah. on if you have more questions. But what is any any thoughts or any questions or you know, kind of a where do you see this? You told me that you have a. I guess whatever your I don't know what to describe your position is, but uh, I mean, how do you think about the the points that we've been discussing? Well, um, I suppose one one way to come at it was, um, you know, the tagline of my podcast is "Cognitive dissonance is good," which I tend tend to mean is, you know, I like to be challenged by different points of view, and there there are 
there are issues which I try and hold two different sides in my head and it kind of fries my brain a bit, but I still like to think about them. And, and one of them is, you know, this, this tension between the, the productivity, the creativity of the market, but then is it, is it possible to look after, you know, care for people on a large scale without some kind of, you know, state enterprise to sort of organize things and, and that's that's a that's a, a question that i come back to a lot because obviously at some point as you've made very clear you know in in day-to-day life we don't think it's all right to go and just say right well you're a wealthy person give give a load of money to help these people who are suffering at gunpoint right um but yeah you know we've, we've well somehow that that same power on mass doesn't translate through to being something that wants to get me, you know, riled up and, and campaign against the government, so to speak. Um, well, it's not camp, you know, I'm not campaigning mm. against government. Oh, I'm just no. saying we have to convert, we have to repent of our allegiance mm. to it. Mm. Focus on, you know, if we want to, we're going to imitate someone. Mm. Mm. I mean, I'm not an activist to get mm. rid of government. Governments oh. get rid of governments are going to get rid of themselves. Mm. What I'm asking people to do is to stop stop lying to themselves mm. to believe it's okay to participate and advocate for and vote for and sit on juries and enforce mm. laws against nonviolent human beings. Mm. If you want to be a Christian, now if you don't want to be a Christian, mm-hmm. not you. I'm just saying. When I, again, my definition of Christian is you're imitating Jesus. Mm. That's it. I'm not saying you have to – I have a different definition of Christian than maybe some people believe. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians will believe you have to believe a certain creed, but you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself in any tangible way. I say it's the opposite. I think the most important thing is are you – do you look like Jesus? Mm-hmm. Do you think like Jesus? Do the fruits of your spirit imitate the model of Jesus? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness. Against such things there is no condemnation. The Bible says. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my standard of what is a Christian is pretty, pretty uh, challenging for everyone, including myself. It's mm-hmm. not something you attain. It's something that's a process your whole life. Mm-hmm. But the question is, and that process doesn't have to do with some kind of where you're, you know, it, it's, it's a question of what you look like and how you act and how you behave in your heart. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, is, what is the what is the sticking point in your head that makes this you know I mean it is a little bit of a cognitive dissonance you know and I understand that's the program but um, as I as I you know you know is throwing money at the poor going to help them you know what's really important is actually is actually enhancing their physical well being and their their physical so like give me that cold fusion example right how much cheaper would food be if water is what powered everything how much cheaper would your electric bill be how much cheaper would – I'm talking about the average poor person or the lower middle class. How much cheaper would your cost of food? How much cheaper would be your goods and services? How much cheaper would construction costs be? How much cheaper would it cost for you to travel and fly? How much cheaper would tickets for flying be? Mm-hmm. How much cheaper would it be to uh, you know, you know, your water bill, everything? I mean just think about the whole package. Mm-hmm. So – and how much cheaper would it be if you didn't have to worry about uh, – or how much better would it be if you didn't have to worry about perpetual wars in the Middle East to protect certain oil markets? Mm. 
how much nicer would the country be? How much nicer would relationships between different races be if we weren't, you know, caught in a continual perpetual occupation of different countries overseas that resent what we've done to them? Right. There's a healing that takes place in there. And I'm saying the only way that that type of technology has a has a fighting chance in hell of getting to the to the people mm. is through the market, mm. because the market has a lot of bad actors in it because mm. most people are selfish people. Mm. <laughs> but the difference is if you don't use the monopoly powers of the state to force, because remember, a monopoly, in my understanding, mm. is something that uses force to prevent people from coming into a market. So the biggest monopoly of all is the government and governments. Mm. And, the, and the, the biggest advocate of oligarchies is government because they create regulations and they give subsidies and they give certain rules mm. that make it very difficult for other people to compete with the reigning powers in certain mm. markets. Mm. So the only shot in hell that's something that we all want, pollution-free, too cheap to meter energy, is the market. Now, how much would that lift up the poverty of people all over the world? Mm. Not just in England, not just in America, but in Africa, mm. everywhere. Mm. What would that do? That's a jubilee. Mm. Nations that have to depend on oil cartels and, and dollars and all this stuff, mm. they would have a fighting chance to get their societies going. Yeah. And food would be so much cheaper and abundant and easier to produce. Mm. Now, think about the next thing. I'm going to give you the other the other pillar of the leftist program that that makes them believe in the state so much. Healthcare, right? You have the NHS, right? So you know, again, think about this. We know the nature of human beings. We know that they are prone to be caught in groupthink, no matter who we are. If you have a bureaucracy that is protected by the state. How hard would it be for a Galileo to come out with a radically different approach to treating cancer? How hard would that be for the NHS to adopt a radical protocol that would be so cheap to administer? You wouldn't need insurance. You wouldn't need government to pay for it because it's literally, you know, pennies. Or what's the word? You guys use pence? Yeah. Is, that pen, is that the equivalent of like a penny or is that yeah. pence? Yeah. So, so think about that for – Let's say I'll give you an example because my friend, Professor Michael Lasanti at Salford University. Now I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for him. But what I would say is, you know, what he has found is that if you he's been using ordinary, generic, FDA approved antibiotics like azithromycin, also known as ZPAC. Mm. Have you heard of that drug antibiotic? I haven't. No. It's Zithromax or Azithromycin or ZPAC. It's an it's an ordinary antibiotic. Mm -hmm. It's a macrolide, which is a type of antibiotic in the way it's structured. It looks like a crown, like a crown. And then and then you have another antibiotic he uses called doxycycline. Have you heard of that? Uh, that's a that's a generic antibiotic that's used for common infections and uh, uh, it's used also for uh, you know, like acting and things like mm -hmm. that. So these are two generic antibiotics, mm. which means they're functioning on a much more market-friendly reality. Because remember, mm. I, I believe a true market person, people who believe in freedom, don't believe in patents. We're not very friendly to the fiction of intellectual property. Mm. And I think that's the I think that's a place where the government has granted 
a lot of power to corporations over our lives that has retarded a lot of scientific progress, this patent focus of medicine. So remember, that's why medicine is so expensive to begin with. You can patent it. Now, with the Food and Drug Administration in America, it cost about a billion dollars in 10 to 15 years to get a new drug approved, right? Now, if that's the case, how could anything that's naturally occurring, which can't be patented, ever have any proper trials done for it? Do, do you follow? Yeah. You have, you have this total bias against any natural substance as a solution for any disease because who can afford to spend a billion dollars on vitamin C or vitamin D3 clinical trials for different illnesses if everybody and their brother can use that – that supplement and sell it and you know so you who's the sucker that's going to sink a billion dollars and everybody else gets to reap the benefit so the fda system acts like it's there for your benefit as a little person but in reality it functions as a protector of the status quo of outdated information about medicine because you don't even get to know there's no money being invested into significant trials for natural substances on any double-blind, high-quality, standard trials, very, very few, because there's no money in it. All the money is allocated towards trying to find a novel new drug that you can patent, because mm. then you can make the profits back to pay for the massive amount of money that the FDA requires for their permission. Mm. So so again, let's go back to Lasanti's thing, because this is the point that I think – I, I want to give folks tangible examples, mm. not just give you the ethics mm. of liberty – Christianity, but also give you tangible, real-world things that you can look up right now and learn about. So imagine that Lysanti's method, using azithromycin and doxycycline to kill cancer stem cells. Cancer stem cells are the root cause of metastasis and cancer. Chemo, radiation, and surgery don't touch the cancer stem cells. This is known. They don't even begin to really hit at the root. It's like you have a plant. It's like you're cutting the grass. You cut the plant off at the top, but you didn't kill the root. The root is the cancer stem cell. Now, think about this. If you can use azithromycin and doxycycline to kill cancer stem cells, then I envision a day, this is me speaking, in which cheap, non-toxic antibiotics that cost a few pennies could be the front line of taking on cancer rather than right now chemo, which totally poisons the body and good cells too. And it also creates senescent cells, which are aging dysfunctional cells, which are the foundation for cancer. That's what chemotherapy does. It also radiation, which causes dysfunction and can kill the patient and surgery which can also cause problems related to metastasis later down the road. So that's our, that's our standard of care that all the government bureaucratically compliant mega corporations and bureaucracies administer. And the NHS does too. But if someone came about and said, no, actually it's antibiotics. Antibiotics could be the front line. Well, you can't patent these particular antibiotics because they're, again, they're generics. They're off patent. So now you have a real market force opportunity that if people had the goodwill – hold on one second. Had to, all right. If people had the goodwill to 
and philanthropically minded people could do clinical trials to demonstrate over and over again in the best trials possible that a combination of doxycycline, azithromycin, and perhaps a few other generic antibiotics could be a frontline way to kill off cancer stem cells, which is the heart of metastatic, uh, metastatic uh, cancers. If that could be demonstrated, then look at how much pain and suffering and how much cost and poverty we could alleviate with just that alone. And my question again is, just like the cold fusion, you know, example, forget whether that's possible or not, but, but with the antibiotics, that's a real example. There's really people doing this. What is the best way for the antibiotic therapy for cancer to be brought into mainstream usage for the poor and everybody? It would be through market forces, not governments picking and choosing which modalities of therapy are going to be used by committee because committees by their nature and bureaucracies by their nature are not very good at adapting to contrarian ideas that totally overthrow the existing paradigm. This is not rocket science. We all know this. We know that bureaucracies don't just sit around with billions of dollars at stake and thousands of people's jobs at stake based on one way of doing things, and then hear from another person saying, excuse me, you have been focusing on a genetic focus on cancer, and I'm telling you that it's primarily a mitochondrial dysfunction of cancer. That's the cause of cancer. It's a mitochondrial approach, a metabolic process that is the foundation for cancer, not the genetic focus. You simply cannot do that. There's so much groupthink entrenched there's so much job security and pensions and people's lives it is so deeply bureaucratically entrenched with government solutions for medical care that that radical idea will not have a fighting chance of making it through the labyrinthine bureaucratic monopoly medicine system and then coming out to the public anytime soon but if you have a free market or some semblance, some little sliver of it left, then you could technically right now find people to put the the dollars up because it's already FDA clear, so it doesn't require the billion-dollar price tag. Maybe a lot, but it won't be a full billion because, because these antibiotics are already cleared for safety in humans. But now you just need to spend a few more million to show that they actually work as a frontline treatment for cancer. And if you do that enough, a philanthropically minded billionaire or a few millionaires could get it FDA approved to use antibiotics as a frontline treatment for cancer. Hmm. Now, would in America, we don't have universal health care yet, but I would find it a lot less persuasive to be accepting of universal health care if I was told that actually, you, you know, because think about chemotherapy and, and those things, those cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's why people have to have insurance. And then they get mad at their insurance companies because, you know, they're not playing right by them. So then they demand government to pay for it. But would you rather have a free market antibiotic that has been demonstrated with double-blind studies to be effective for cancer stem cells that's non-toxic, it costs a few cents, or free, quote-unquote, government health care 
that will chop, burn, and radiate your body and chemo poison your body. Do you see what I mean? So when you look at the market, it challenges a whole nother perspective because the market is what allows for contrarians, heretics, misfits, underdogs, Galileos to have a fighting chance to get their service to people. Would you say that's because it's kind of a, a distributed network of the general intellect? Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. It's you're, you're allowing the spontaneous order to find solutions. And when you, of course, it doesn't mean that, again, I want folks who are on the left listening to understand, it doesn't mean that corporations are somehow like more um, uh, benevolent than government bureaucracies. But what it means is if they don't have access to a government bureaucracy to stifle competition, then the market will find solutions that work. And if people are saving their families' lives and their own lives, because, again, I'm, giving, I'm painting a scenario to the future that there's enough double-blind studies that can happen to demonstrate that generic antibiotics that don't have toxic side effects, nearly to the degree that chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery provide, if these things can be demonstrated, such that doctors are able to start using these things on the front line. You don't need insurance to pay for cancer treatment. You don't need to even spend hardly any money to pay for cancer treatment. And you don't need, certainly don't need government to take over the provision of the care because, again, they only came in because we abused the market process. We rigged it in the favor of industries and cartels and medical groups such that it became so obscenely expensive that governments keep tapping out. I mean, people keep tapping out and demanding big daddy and mommy government to come provide them cradle to care, cradle to grave healthcare. But that's only treating the symptom of a rigged market. So government rigs markets, makes them very expensive, makes them very uh, ineffective for the consumer. The consumer cries out for help, and the government says, okay, we'll save you from your free market. We'll take it from here. You've had too much freedom to drink, sir. <laughs> We're taking your freedom away because you guys are children. Now we're going to administer it so none of you have to worry about costly care. And everybody says, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hmm. Meanwhile, they don't know that that monopolization of the healthcare system is precluding Galileos from saying, sir, the sun you know, is the center of the solar system, not the earth. And they say, who are you? We never heard of you. Have you gone through our bureaucratic process Step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Have you been to the right university? Have you been to Oxford or Yale or Harvard? Where? Who are you? And why should we listen to you? You get lost in the mail, or you're you're done for. And they say, okay, yawn, and they go on. And so the public says, oh, in Great Britain and people, they say, oh, look, the NHS, they care for us. And I guess if you only have a myopic view that can see everything we have as basically the best we're ever going to have for healthcare, then yeah, if they make it so, so so-called free, that feels better. But if you could have a a five cent antibiotic in the market, treat your cancer early on, because it uses a whole different model, just like Galileo, mm. that the bureaucracies, both the, you know, both the private government relationship monopoly that we have in America and the more government 
managed system we have in the UK, whichever flavor of that top-down government way of doing medicine that you pick, the only way you can say that universal health care is the direction for the poor to have their care is if you have a end-of-history approach, as if, nope, the, the genetic view of solving cancer is the final word, and all we have to do is just get enough money and ideas and bureaucracies, and eventually we'll fine-tune the best therapy, and it'll cost a ton of money, but we'll have government subsidize it through the creation of, of credit like they do. But that's, a, that's such a cynical, conservative, and I dare say Luddite view of the future. And Luddite just simply, you know, afraid of the future, afraid of technological progress. Because if it's the case that antibiotics could be the treatment, how does that react to the people right now who are saying, oh, I'm perfectly fine with my government chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery? If you don't need to chop your, you know, parts of your body off, if you don't need to poison good cells with chemotherapy, and if you don't need to burn your body with radiation, if instead you could do some non-toxic, non-invasive therapies that you could pay for with a few bucks without insurance, who the hell needs government health care? No, I, I, mean? I, I, I take your point there, and um, I'll just move on to one because I think you, I was going to ask about you know free markets against crony capitalism, but I think you've made that good point there. Um, but again, thanks a lot for your time. I'll just sort of bring one more point in, seeing as we're talking about the NHS. And again, you know, as someone on the left in, in Britain, but that doesn't matter because it's it's such a deeply embedded thing in the UK, sort of the NHS. Um, but even more so from a leftist point of view because it came out of the miners forming into unions and forming into with their own sort of healthcare plan and then that the Labour Party came in and took that and, and brought that to the nation and it's such a, it, it's a very romanticised thing um, and, and really pulls on people's heartstrings um, and, and again Boris Johnson recently when he came out of hospital he did this nhs video to the nhs and you know he's a he's a conservative but he was talking about things like that the nhs was the heart of the uk and powered by love and it did actually move me deeply but then you know because i've read your stuff i, I was thinking you know as, as deeply as you know i love the nhs that might sound bizarre you know for someone to say well why are you loving a state institution um but I can't speak to the science things that you were talking to, but I am aware that people have said, well, if if in the UK, just because people would idolise the NHS so much, it, it can stop it from being properly criticised when mistakes are made. Or some people even go further and say, and, and this is kind of like painful for me to say, so I don't even want to think about it to a certain extent, which is bizarre, but... Um, they would say, well, okay, so the NHS is, is, is good to a certain extent, but really there are better healthcare models out there. So, for example, France, Germany, where it, this, this government sort of provides healthcare, but then there are certain market forces within it where people will pay a certain amount. And actually, as much as the British public love the NHS, maybe if you're trying to save lives, that french german model is is better i know you're going you're being way more radical than that but d does that make sense about the idea of this idolization what makes of... you feel bad about criticizing the nhs that's interesting sorry uh, david 
what makes you feel bad about criticizing the NHS? You said, I even feel bad even saying that France or Germany might have some better things than us. What makes you feel that way? No, that, that, I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, as as someone on the left, the NHS in in that sense is seen as such a towering achievement of socialism, if you want to, if you want to use that word. Um, but even nationally, it, I think it's because people are so, you know, everyone relies on it so much that maybe in a way, you know, in a self-interested way, we're, we're worried that if there were any cracks came out in its in the way it was ran, that the whole thing might fall down. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what the state is religion. It creates those kind of feelings in us. Mm-hmm. Nationalism, patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- those, are, those feelings are not to be mocked, mm-hmm. but they are to be very – you should be very skeptical mm-hmm. of, of giving in to those feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the feeling of transcendence that we get when we get to be a part of something that soars us beyond ourselves Mm. and we feel like we're part of some bigger body, Mm. you know? And so we, we, we have a natural desire to adore Mm. and worship things that Mm. we feel save us Mm. and bind us together. Mm. And the Latin word for the word religion means to bind together, Mm. right? So the NHS binds the UK together. It does, it does. It binds you together. It binds your body back together if you have an injury, and it binds your nation back together when there's an attack from a pandemic. Mm. So those are natural feelings to feel. Mm. But those feelings hide the reality of the sacred, Mm. which is that, unfortunately, it's often mediated by sacrifice. Mm. Sacrifice is what you don't see. Sacrifice is when you entrench societies and their services mm. in a monopolistic fashion, which is what the NHS is. Mm. Is there any competitors for the NHS? There, there is private health care, but it's um, it's only about 8% of the population. And it's for the rich, right, yeah. or something? Yeah. yeah. So they give those little crumbs to the – well, it's not crumbs, but mm. they give the rich their little toy and they mm. keep everybody else in the – Healthcare system. Well, um, everyone's covered by it, but the rich can can buy extra care if you like on top. Yeah, it's like Disney, where you pay a hundred dollars to get in the park, but then you have to pay a hundred dollars more to get the fast pass. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, but the but the thing that's interesting to me is again, I just touched on cancer, but the same antibiotics that I've talked about for have been demonstrated in clinical trials to kill cancer stem cells. Mm those same antibiotics can be used to clear out all kinds of senescent cells. Azithromycin has showed, ZPAC has shown it's 97% of senescent cells are killed when you put ZPAC in a uh, laboratory um, culture of senescent cells. Senescent cells are aging cells. Those are the dysfunctional cells, which are the foundation for chronic illnesses like hypertension and diabetes and cancer and diabetes and all these things that we think are just inevitable because of age. Mm. So what I'm suggesting is, how would you feel about the NHS and all of its services? Now, I understand for surgeries and things like that, that they, they do a great job. But in terms of the real issue of treating chronic illnesses like heart disease mm-hmm. and cancer and diabetes and Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. what if we're going to find out soon that our single-payer nutrition science was totally wrong, 
that government nutrition science has got it totally wrong about what the human body needs to eat to thrive, and that if we correct what we eat, then we don't have to have the massive amounts of chronic illnesses like diabetes and so forth plague our bodies and that require such ineffective medical treatments to mitigate and that those ineffective drugs are only expensive because the government granted the people patents which allow them to create obscene profit margins. And then that requires government to come in there and manage everything and, and fund everything. So what I'm saying is, I just, I don't know, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to translate that to folks who are so stuck on the universal healthcare frame of thinking when I'm suggesting that there are solutions right under our noses that we would have known a lot long ago if we had had a free society that would allow us to find the solutions from the contrarian voices, from the Galileos, to provide solutions to diabetes and heart disease and so forth that would cost either free because you're just eating a different way or very, very close to free, like cheap antibiotics that are not patented. Do you see what I mean? Like, do you yeah. see how the market actually, in my opinion, is a much, much more benevolent humanitarian force for the alleviation of suffering and human sickness and poverty? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I, to I totally understand where you're coming from. And, and it's great to learn, you know, your different points of view on that. Um, I can't speak to, again, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I don't, I can't speak to the diet thing, but maybe, maybe this is a, a contrast to, to explore. So again, I'm not an expert. I'm just going off things that I've read in newspapers, but I, I seem to think that, you know, you're right about the NHS is not so good or public health in Britain is not so good on the sort of lifestyle aspect of things. I mean, Britain has traditionally got a worse kind of diet or lifestyle um, than other European countries um, but I think that reflects in the NHS because something that I'm kind of aware of in the past it's getting better at this but is, is fixing people up once they get sick now and that's that's very expensive but one thing which uh, this and this is just an anecdote which I, I had a friend when he was at university he went over to America for for the year and um, he, um, he he was playing football and he injured his, his knee. Now, he was on private insurance when he was out there. But the, he injured his knee and he was fine, but they gave him a whole CAT scan, etc. Now, in the UK, you would only get one of those if you were very ill or something like that, or you would have, you know, it's still, it's got better since then. But um, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that I got the impression that because in America, and this was an advantage of the American system to some extent, um, and I, I think this is reflected in some of the statistics as well, if you're lucky to have insurance, is that because in America the insurance companies were, they were more, they didn't want people to get sick beforehand because that costs more. So they wanted to detect things before you get ill. So the fact that he, you know, he injured his knee playing football and he was given an entire CAT scan, which someone in the UK, traditionally speaking, would have only had, you know, maybe if they were diagnosed with cancer or something, that seemed to me a contrary. Um, as, you know an anecdotal but contrary argument in favor of sort of market-based solutions to healthcare because it was trying to preempt things that would cost the insurance company more down the line whereas the nhs was kind of more you know fix you up once you get ill right does that make sense yeah i think that's a great illustration i think 
America, you know, again, is not some free market bastion either. You know, I would I would say 70 to 80 percent of our market is totally government managed. And the Medicare, Medicaid, which is for the poor, Medicare for the seniors, that is a massive amount of spending and control into how the markets do care and what they set the price at, how they pay it, how they, you know, then hospitals get a massive amount of subsidies from different levels of government. And uh, then you have things like medical licensing. Medical licensing wasn't always a thing in America. And uh, you didn't always have to have a license. But when you create a license, what you do is you create a cartel that makes it very difficult for competing ideas about philosophies of medicine to have a fair chance. We just don't know what we don't know. We're told this is medicine. And it's been decided. And who who decided it? They'll say, well, the 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 learned academy has decided it. And you're like, okay, well, who funded the academy? Well, government and their crony big business friends. Well, who who decided to make them the power people to decide which academies are there? And then furthermore, who decides who gets the chairmanship and the the, the chair position of different uh, uh, departments in these universities? And who decides who gets on the peer reviewed journal uh, uh, positions? which then are the ones that grant the prestige and favor to ideas about treating the body in different forms. So all of that's political. All of that is rigged by government and its monopolistic powers. So if you're against monopolies and you're against crony capitalism, you have to be for the market. The market is the best tool to nonviolently create uh, creative destruction against the entrenchment of bureaucracies, outdated ideas, and crony, greedy capitalism. Because in a free market, you wouldn't be focused on patentable medicine. You'd be focused on medical care, probably mostly natural supplements and solutions that would have enough. If we freed up the market system today and didn't have an FDA, a lot of money would start pouring into natural supplements with double-blind studies adequately done to demonstrate the efficacy of a lot of natural, cheap substances that people can use for different health issues. And then if we freed up and had a free market and single payer, right now we have single payer nutrition. So my argument in America is single payer nutrition is what got us sick. The food pyramid, we have something called the food pyramid and it subsidizes food. It subsidizes wheat and sugar and coin, corn and soy, all kinds of carbohydrate foods. So it's a pay-for-play system that promotes the massive amount of consumption of grains and carbohydrates. And so I call it single-payer nutrition. So I tell people single-payer medical care can't fix what single-payer nutrition broke, right? <laughs> so everybody's worried because because the big, the big argument in America is what if my family member has cancer? What if my family member has diabetes? What if they have Alzheimer's? What if they have heart disease and they don't have proper coverage. And what I'm saying is insurance, big insurance policies and big uh, pharmaceutical drugs and big government management of those things, none of those are the solutions, right? Is that if you actually had a free information flow of ideas, see in the market, if your idea doesn't work, it's not going to stay around because What's protecting you from keeping it going? You have to have the power of the state to intervene on your behalf to stop other people from having better ideas with better solutions that get better results. So think about it. I mean, just think about it in a purely abstract term. Who in the world in a free market 
would choose to go to Dr. A, who gives you an antibiotic to treat your cancer, or Dr. B, who will chop your body up, radiate your body, and poison all your healthy cells so your hair is missing and you might die from the chemotherapy. Who in the world? I'm just assuming all things being equal, that both of those were fully invested in terms of being able to be adequately researched with funding and research and double-blind studies. Who in the world would take the, the, the toxic, dangerous option B? They'd take option A. So doctors who promote option A would flourish, and doctors who promote the more antiquated model would fail immediately. And the drug providers that provide those things would go bankrupt unless they got on the program and started investing their money into solutions that were actually holistic and helpful for the body. Now, your and my immediate programming is to hear what I just said and say, well, what he's suggesting is quacks should just go run wild on everybody. That's what you're programmed to think. And the reason why we're programmed to think that way is who educated us? Government did. <laughs> so, so government educates us from the moment we're little to the moment we're you know, in college. And then the media, which is also protected by government from competition with the different licensing laws that they have. So they have this incestuous relationship to reaffirm the power and supremacy of the state and its crony corporate friends. So we are inundated from the moment we're young children to the, in high school and college and in the media to be totally uh, believing that we cannot survive but for the benevolent power and intervention of the state. And why is the state benevolent and powerful? Because the majority voted for the people that run it at the top, and that's BS. We know that's just sacrificial logic. We already illustrated that with the neighborhood, with the elderly man and the elderly woman. So we know that's an illegitimate way to, to decide things. It's popularity contest where majority gets to subjugate its, its might over other people. You cannot have innovation if majority rules everything. What would the majority rules say about Tesla if Edison and his friends were running the majority rule policy for electricity? What would the majority rule say if we had a NHS for transportation in America and transportation was decided by government bureaucracy? And guess who staffed the government bureaucracy for transportation? People who make horseshoes for horses and carriages. People who make carriages for horses and carriages. So what are they going to do when those folks who are the experts who went to the finest schools to make horse and carriages and to make the horseshoes for the horses? and to make the grains and the products for the horses. What would they say if they had the NHS-type power or FDA-type power over transportation when they hear of a new idea from a young Henry Ford to make a car? They'd say, this is preposterous. This is a total reckless idea. This shall not be permitted because it's going to kill everybody. Once people have a motorized vehicle, They'll go to bizarre speeds. They'll fly everywhere. They'll crash into homes. Everyone will be dying. It'll be the most worst catastrophe we'd ever known. And we'd be still using horse and buggy today. And we'd say, thank you, NHS, for taking care of us during this crisis. Or thank you, FDA, for giving, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. It's the idea that when you try to create a monopoly, it doesn't know what it doesn't know. Hmm. It doesn't have the competitive pressure hmm. to say, wait a second. Wait a second. You're telling me you can have a, a car and it, we don't need a horse and carriage? Or you're saying that we could use an antibiotic that doesn't toxify the body, does not make the body sick, and that could be a thing that kills cancer stem cells? That's so bizarre for people 
but it's especially bizarre for people who who consider themselves to be the experts. Hmm. But here's the reason why I know that so much of what we think is settled science is not true. It's because I understand Rene Girard's mimetic theory. I understand that human beings are prone to faith, and they're prone to groupthink much more than we want to realize, you see? And so when we think of the grandeur of experts, we are much, much more trusting of them than we should be. And they are much, much more trusting of their shared knowledge about what is the consensus for how to solve certain problems than they should be, because that's the nature of a monopoly that the state provides. The state creates a sacred monopoly, and they scapegoat people who violate – they sacrifice people who violate the shared dogmas of what is proper knowledge. So in cancer research, it's genetic. You can ask people all day long in the cancer field, does the mitochondria, does metabolism play a role in cancer cells? And they'll say, of course. But they'll always go back to, but it's primarily a genetic disease. And all of the funding, the hundreds of billions of dollars, government money and private donation is geared towards the taxpayer-funded university uh, you know, research groups who say in the hospitals that say, it is a genetic disease. Let's keep looking there. So in a free market, if that was a wrong idea, that would be weeded out decades ago. We wouldn't have had that 1960s is when Nixon declared war on cancer. Here we are 60 years later, and we're still having more fatalities than we did back then. But we're not allowed to question things and be like Hippocrates and say, let food be thy medicine. Maybe it starts with our food. Maybe it starts with the notion that perhaps the human body was not meant to eat hundreds of carbohydrates a day. And perhaps the human body was not meant to eat vegetable oils. We switched everybody from butter to vegetable oils. And vegetable oils, from my understanding, are some of the most toxic, inflammatory things you can put in the human body. I'm talking about industrial vegetable oils, Mm. margarine. Do they call it margarine over there? Yeah. Yeah, margarine is the most toxic thing you can put in the body, one of the most awful things. And they got every grandma for generations putting, instead of butter, put margarine on. And margarine is awful for inflammation, and it's awful for the creation of strong cellular walls that are strong and resistant to disease. And then the other thing is they got us to eat massive amounts of carbohydrates. So the question is, why is there such a denigration to meat? There's such an attack against meat. It's because big soy, big corn, big wheat, and big sugar, the big carbohydrate, they to collectively have much more muscle to flex than big meat. Because big meat, guess what they feed most of their animals? Big soy and big corn and all that. So they're lower on the pecking order. You know, they may have power, and of course they use their lobbying power to control the regulations for their favor in America and in UK. But if you look at the grand scheme of things, Big meat is much smaller than big soy, big corn, and big wheat, and big sugar, and big, you know, all that together, right? And so the the big grains, the big carbohydrate uh, food companies are able to dictate to governments to obfuscate what is proper nutrition for the human body. And that's what creates the massive diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, and the massive rates that never seem to abate no matter what we do. So what I'm just saying is there is so much we can do and, and, and never let it be said 
that those who advocate for freedom are not on the side of humanitarianism. We are the ones who truly have the humanitarian vision, I think, most uh, most fully articulated because we are we are encompassing a love of our neighbor. I'm not saying everybody who advocates for a free market. See, the great thing about a free market is it's neither good nor bad. It just is, you know. You can use the free market to sell awful things. But if you hurt someone, you're going to have accountability for that because people can sue you. They can have tort, right? If you sell people a jar of mayonnaise and say it's vitamin C, that's fraud, and the free market will handle that with damages paid to your victim, and you'll be out of business if you keep doing that, right? But today we have an FDA-approved medical care system that says this is a cancer solution, and it's not working. It's killing the patient more than the cancer is. And where's their accountability? Can you sue the FDA? Can you sue the pharmaceutical companies who have been approved by the FDA? No, because the approval by the FDA protects them from a lot of liability because they can always say no. Yeah, my drug's fine. Look, the FDA approved it. I, I spent a billion dollars. FDA says it's fine. You can't sue me. So the FDA actually shields the little shields the mega corporations from having accountability from the customer. You said this was a cancer drug. You said it was safe. I took it and look at what it did to my family. Look what it did to my to my body. And the same goes for diabetes and heart disease. Now they've got millions of people on statin drugs to to manage uh, cholesterol and to manage uh, to, to manage this 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 prevalence of all this uh, you know fatalities that people are having. And now we're finding out that statin drugs are not effective. Now we're finding out that dietary consumption of cholesterol animal cholesterol is actually not what's causing heart disease. That's the, that's the newest science. But you know what? If we had a free market system, we would have figured this stuff out decades ago. Well, I, I think you've made a very good argument there for uh, the moral foundations of free markets, uh, David. Um, there's, there's loads I could go on with, but maybe we could save that. Yeah, you know, I think we could talk about free... Of, uh, We've kind of pressed this as much as we can today. Yeah, um, you know, talk about free markets and education, more about your yeah. gerardium mimesis. Maybe we could do that another time, perhaps. Um, yeah. But, you know, I really thank you for your time going on for nearly two hours on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, well, this is, you know, I you're an educator, and I love to educate as well uh, in terms of getting people to think outside the box. So I would ask you... If you have any tips for me, knowing what I've tried to communicate today, any suggestions for how I can be uh, effective in communicating these ideas to folks who live in, let's say, Britain, you know, Great Britain, where you have, you know, because I'm an American, so I don't ever want to be blind to the way that I explain things and assume that, you know, that is effective for explaining it to folks who are in other situations and other cultures. Um, well, I suppose one thought that comes to my mind is, and I've, I've thought about this once or twice, well, a few, quite a lot before actually, is it, the, the diff, you know, why, why is there less antagonism towards the state, let's say, than in, in European countries rather than in America? And I don't know whether it's because I think some of the ways which the the, the, the 
the government system is is in let's say in Britain, let's say. So when laws are passed, um, the the legislative body has more power than often seems to be more powerful vis-a-vis the judiciary than it does in the United States. So, for example, if the Supreme Court says that something is law or something isn't law, that puts it in very much a more us-and-them kind of situation in the United States, whereas if a controversial law is passed by the state legislature in Britain, you know, in the House of Parliament or in France, wherever, because it's kind of come, it's got that kind of quasi-democratic aspect to it, people are less likely to oppose it on those grounds and I, I think you know with the nature of the you know the American Revolution and how it was set up I think there's a lot more organic skepticism towards government in the US than there is in other European countries I don't know if I'm making sense there I think it makes sense yeah I think um, it makes a lot of sense so yeah so what I, would be a good I mean is there a, is there a one thing that you would suggest for feedback to me to help my ideas communicate better to folks who have grown up in environments where uh, a, a healthy faith in the state is much more entrenched. Um, yeah, I would I would say that a good way to 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 come across that is is just to recognise that in in I, I would say in European countries in the UK, people are less afraid of the government for good or ill, or they they perhaps they don't fear the government as much for good or ill, you know, as they do in the United States because you know what well, this is a quote that comes to me. Um, you know Lemmy from Motorhead, uh-huh. um, the you know the the rocker from from Motorhead. He was once asked, you know, um, oh, you, you know, you're a heavy metal guy. Do you, do you? He was British, and he said, "Do you like guns?" He said, "Don't don't you think you need guns to bring down the American government?" And he said, "Well, the the, the British people have brought down the government, you know, without guns several times. All it takes is a is a scandal in the newspapers." Right. Uh, so he was, it was, it was obviously that's just a jokey comment, but um, I suppose there's that, you know, the, in the UK there's that taking the mick mentality, and I think people, you know, may, maybe not with the royal family, but with the politicians, let's say, people are much more likely to see them in a less serious tone, so not to fear them as much. Right. Well, I don't fear, I don't think it's fear that mm. I'm motivated by with this. I think it's just, I see faith in government like someone telling me I believe that Zeus exists. Mm, mm. So I don't look at, oh, I'm scared if those people with Zeus beliefs have a lot of power. Mm. I, I mean, it is it is going to cause a lot of violence for everybody, mm. and it does. Mm. And it does create a lot of uh, poverty. So it is a bad thing that people believe that Zeus is the way that mm. solved their problems. Mm. But I believe people's faith in government is equivalent to a, just a primitive religion that they don't understand it can't provide what they think it can provide. Right. And what it does provide is a shallow, pale uh, truncation of what they could actually get if they could move out beyond the superstition that the state is what they need to survive. Right. Think for themselves. Right. It would open up a whole paradigm shift for them to be able to say, oh, I don't have to do a sacrifice to Zeus to get the rain to come. That's literally how I view people, people the faith of state. It doesn't mean I see them in a meet. I don't see that in a – I hope that doesn't sound patronizing. No, I no. just see it in that same way. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a problem of, of, of uh, faith. It's a, it's a religious issue. 
they, you know, there's a, there are people who still believe if they sacrifice a chicken, it'll make the rain come. Mm. So when you see that person, you don't really say, I'm afraid of that. Mm. But you do say, let me show you the rain. We have this meteorology and we can see rain coming. We can see the radar. You don't have to worry about killing the chicken. Mm. Keep the chicken around. Mm. Now, I, I, I was just going to sum that up and say the thought just occurred to me. I suppose if you were to come at it from that angle, um, I would say that perhaps in America people see government as a necessary evil at best, whereas in the UK it's more seen as a tool and whether yeah. that helps with your analysis and where you want to go with that. But just, you know, right. as you were saying, I think what's really good about and why I wanted to reach out with you, because I could tell from listening to you that you, you sounded like, a, you know, a, a kind-hearted guy who was kind of willing to see both sides. So I think that's right. really good in your but I appreciate your I appreciate your great questions, and uh, let me know when you have this out, and we'll try to promote it ourselves. Yeah, so I'll I mean I'll probably put it up on um, on Anchor. It's called. Um, yeah. Are you going to do uh, as one episode or two, or what do you think? I'll, I'm going to put this out as one. Um, okay. And then maybe we could do another one sometime if you feel like you'd like to. All right. Well, thanks for your time, James. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you. No, thanks ever so much, David. I'll I'll email you when I've got the got it out. All right, thanks. You take care. Cheers, same to you. Bye. Okay, folks. Thanks very much for listening. If you're interested in keeping up to date with posts and podcasts, please check me out, James Simpkin, um, on Twitter, um, Medium, and YouTube. Look forward to bringing you some more interesting speakers and thinkers in the weeks and months to come. Cheers.